Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Nurasil Serek, co-founder of Remo First and also my first Kazakh-origin UK entrepreneur. Remo First helps companies build global remote teams in 150 countries by allowing companies to hire talent in countries where they do not have an entity. Nurasil bootstrapped the company to seven-digit revenues with five employees and then went on to close a 14 million seat round of funding, one of the largest in the UK. In this podcast, I'm going to find out how he did this and his views on remote working as a long-term. So welcome, Nurasil. Really happy to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me, Anita. So, Nurasil, I thought we could start off from the beginning. I wanted to have you give the audience a background about Remo First, what you do at Remo First, and how you came about starting Remo First. Sure, sure. Thank you. So, Remo First is an employer record solution that allows companies to hire people in 150 countries without them setting up their own entities. So, in a sense, we help companies if they have any remote employees. In many different countries, they don't want to set up their own entities. We have entities in 150 countries and we allow people to essentially forget about the headache of setting up their own entities and thinking about regulations of different countries. We take care of all the kind of a back office stuff. So starting from providing an employment contract to doing the payroll, paying the taxes on behalf of the employee, paying the tax on behalf of the company, everything to do with that. And then we are essentially the most cost-efficient solution in the market. Our pricing starts from just 199 USD per person per month. I have a lot of questions about, about Remo First itself. It's obviously very timely given the trend towards remote and hybrid. But before I go into that, I would love to hear, how did you come up with this idea? Sure. So I've been remote first founder for seven plus years. All my previous companies were remote first and bootstrapped. In a sense, we were our own customers. So I've essentially felt the pain of our own customers. I tried to find a solution that would have worked for us, but most of it was quite expensive or was not as tech savvy as I wanted. And then that essentially led me to understanding that this is a huge problem, but after starting my own startups, I had one exit. I then joined another startup, which was an HR tech space where I built a payroll system for them. And then when I built the payroll system, basically it was quite clear for me that payroll is one of the most powerful tools in the world. 
because every single person in the world pretty much gets paid through payroll. And that fascinated me. So it was quite easy to understand that I know how to build a payroll. I know the pain points of the customer to start a Rima first. It was just, it was meant to be with the expertise and knowledge we had at that point. We started Rima first at the beginning of 2021. And then back then, to be honest, there were quite a few players who started already in this space. But what was interesting for us, we understood that this is a huge market. This market has been in place for 20 plus years. So even the new players who started before us, they've still been late. They're not the first ones to create this industry, basically. So for us, it was just a simple idea of understanding what in this industry and then what we realized that is a huge time it's not a winner take it all and then most importantly there are pain points that customers needed so what we did before we started i'm a product i'm a product person at core and then for me it was really important to understand the customers so what i did i started talking to customers of our competitors and then created a simple landing page, drove a bit of traffic to understand what the customer really needs and wants. And it was very simple. Customers said, hey, I love the idea of hiring people in 150 countries, but what I hate about it, how expensive it was. So and then for us, it was just easy to understand how we can make this more cost efficient. And then that's essentially it. So that's something that drove us to enter the market to make sure that we can solve the pain points for our customers. So why was the solutions that existed more expensive and what did you do to make it cheaper? Yeah, so that essentially is something that maybe five years ago, the price used to be anything between $1,000 to $2,000 per person per month. After new players entered the market, it was around $500 to $700 per person per month. And we are starting from $199 USD per person per month. And then that depends on business model, operational model, and many different factors that the others have adopted for themselves. We had a benefit of doubt of thinking, okay, how can we make this more affordable? So we were focusing on affordability, Mm. but essentially we didn't just enter the market and then uh, dump the price, meaning that anyone can sell $1 for 99 cents and claim they're growing fast. We did it. And then in a healthy way, so our unit economics are healthy, and then we're growing very healthy. In less than 12 months, we'll become fully profitable as a company. And that tells that we just didn't dump the price, but rather we found a way how to make this sustainable. Very. This is not your first startup, right, Norisol? You've dabbled in entrepreneurship and starting companies for some time now. Can you look back at your career and highlight some of the things that you did? that helped you in setting up Remo first successfully? Well, absolutely. And then you're right. As I said, I started a bunch of startups. Most of them failed at one exit. But essentially, um, I did a once a good summary of three points that I learned out of all startups that helped Remo first to become more successful than the others. Essentially, I think out of that, the first one is that the customer is the king. So that that is the most important thing is that you need to understand your customer. You need to understand what they want, what they need, why they choose what they choose. And that is one of the most important things for starting any startup. And then the second thing I would put timing. So 
for me, I believe that there's lots of startups that you can start, but timing could be one of the most crucial areas for the success because the chance of you raising money on becoming a successful startup is less than 1%. So to increase that chance at least a little bit, timing should be in your favor as well. And in that, what happened with Rima first, the timing was in our favor. And the last thing I think, which is very important for any entrepreneur, I just take it as a simple word saying, just keep swimming, right? And in that is important because... When we started, many people told us that this is too late. They're out of place who raised a bunch of money. Don't start. Don't do that. Don't do it. So you just have to keep swimming and then believe in what you believe that is correct in your opinion. And then just give it a try. And then if it doesn't work out, the worst thing it doesn't work out. There's nothing wrong about that. And yeah. I think that those are the three things that I'll Rima first to become more successful than the other startup that I've set up previously. I want to go back to the first point on the customer. I know that's something you really believe very firmly. And I agree that if you understand who you're serving and what their needs and pain points are, and you focus on that, you're in the right path. But at the very beginning, how did you figure out who you should go after. Like even in terms of remote hiring, there's so many different types of companies, verticals that are doing remote hiring. How did you decide? Should you do SMB? Should you do enterprise? Should you stay in UK? Should you do it somewhere else? Or can you talk me through how you found the ideal customer? That's it. That's a very good question. I think at the beginning, it's a little chaotic. You basically accept whoever comes first right <laughs> so you're happy to take anyone and then you learn who is your ideal customer and i think you just have to get out there and then start getting as much traffic as possible and then experiment and try things out and then you will quickly figure out that hey you want to start from enterprise but they take six months to close <laughs> but you need to grow as a startup then you're like okay if i need to grow then maybe i need to go to smb so they can make decisions faster and then that essentially drives you kind of decision process and then value proposition also could be different so not every enterprise client wants the most cost affordable solution maybe they happy to pay more and so on and so forth so that it's all about trial and error. So you just need to fail fast and try fast things. And then that's the only way to get to a point where you realize who is your ideal customer. But it's hard to predict everything in advance. I know that you had quite a few customers and even revenue and you turned cash flow positive slightly before you raised money. How did you attract your first few customers? So it's, we spent zero dollars in marketing. So it was mainly direct outreach. And then I think obviously I've done zero B2B sales. So I had zero experience in B2B sales. And then there was the first time for me as well doing B2B sales on my own. And I never considered myself a good salesperson. I think again, in, I've, I've been studying a little bit how to do sales when I just started in B2B sales. And then what I realized is just it's similar in everything you do in life. It's all about numbers so everything in life is just a numbers game you just knock enough doors and one will open and then that's i think at the beginning that's the right approach just keep going 
keep knocking the doors. And then if your value proposition is something that people want and need, someone will say yes. So you just basically did a lot of cold outreach initially. Yes. Interesting. Okay. I want to just talk a little bit about the market. It's less about hiring actually. And what I'm hearing is just hiring freezes and layoffs and termination. So what are you seeing at Remo First in terms of trends and in the marketplace? That's a good question, a timely question. We are going into a recession and many different other things that people call. Doubtless, this year is a slower in terms of hiring than we would want or would have expected. And then a lot of our clients are terminating the employees and then not growing the way they wanted, but that's totally fine. It's a cyclical world. Everything comes in cycles. There are ups and downs, but what I believe is that there needs to be in some kind of major event for the whole world to stop hiring people. There are companies who are freezing the hires, but there are companies who are hiring people. And then we ourselves as Rima First, for example, we started at the beginning of this year with five people, now we're 40 people. And then we are hiring people and there are a lot more companies like us as well. So it's a mixture. And then it also depends on what geographies, if you look at, if you look at, for example, India, there's a still 2021 in terms of VC funding and then companies growing and then, and so on. And then the good thing about being a global company that your client base is diversifies. So you can take those hits and then, some parts of your clients will freeze. The other part will just actually grow. Have you made any changes because of the environment in terms of where you focus? Not really, because as I said, in even in the market that things are freezing, we still have the clients who are hiring people. So for now, I think we are okay, but we'll see next year how things shape out. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to talk about funding. I think it's really impressive that you raised a seed round of 14 million back in February and you were just like five people. I would love to hear your journey and how you managed to raise that much money because it's definitely at the upper end in terms of seed round of funding, especially given that it's a crowded place. There are several companies much bigger than you, more well-funded than you, so talk me through your funding journey and why you believe you ended up where you did. That's a very good question because it is something that everyone told us it will be hard for us to raise the money. And then even when we spoke with different VCs and angels, try I, before fundraising and try to understand what would be a good number to start with. So I think there are a few things that I can point out. Again, just to going back to numbers game, everything is a numbers game. So for us, we've contacted a bunch of VCs. Some of, some of them said no, some of them said yes, but that's, again, it's just, you need to understand what's the chance of raising even in a good environment. Maybe it's a 1%, then you need to, reach out to 100 VCs to get at least one to say yes. And then that's essentially an approach I took to make sure that I have enough 
VCs in the pipeline. Again, I have enough coverage in terms of what geographies I'm going after VCs in Europe or US. And then it was tough. I would have to say it was very tough at the beginning. We had lots of no's and it kind of motivates you and puts you in a place of thinking maybe you don't really need the money because you're profitable. And then you go back to your cave and start working on the product and growth instead of fundraising. But we were lucky that we did a few things right. Number one, we had people surrounding us to give us good introductions to good VCs. Number two is that we just kept going, as I said. And then number three is we had a good differentiation. So the way we do things in terms of our pricing, in terms of our product kind of direction, where we want to be and how we see the landscape, that's very important. So especially in the market, when you have a lot of crowded space, have a lot of competitors unless you have a differentiation a, a compelling differentiation that can make the difference then it would definitely be hard to raise the money because even with our differentiation it was hard to raise money so we were actually initially raising seven million dollars but we were so oversubscribed that at the end we decided to do 14 <laughs> and then that wow. essentially i think how things escalated, but seven would have been a normal size seed round. But yeah, so it ended up being 14. Obviously, part of the reason you were able to raise that kind of money was because you had done quite a bit with the five people. Like you had a product, you had customers, you had revenue, you had a lot of things to show that you can execute before you went out to raise money. So I'm less surprised that you were oversubscribed or that you had so much money. But what I would like to get into a bit more detail or as much as you can share is on valuation. Can you walk me through how you settled on the valuation for the company? Sure, because it was still before the war. <laughs> so things could have been in a way that we could have asked a good valuation, but I tried to be a little bit modest, knowing the fact that it's good not to shoot in your own foot and make sure that you can live up to valuations. Mm -hmm. So I would consider our valuation quite modest compared to especially our competitors who were in, in our position and probably similar to our revenues, they would have asked 200x multiplier on revenue and so on. We tried to be a little bit modest because I felt that it's good to live up to your valuation. And then it turned out to be right in current conditions. And then maybe just, as you mentioned about five people, I can shed a bit of light on that as well to any founders who are struggling is that, especially if you think about VC and funding, there are a lot of indicators for any VC, which are easy to understand that you are a good founder and you can build things most of the time is it's your kind of background are you a x fifth or tenth person of stripe or any other great yeah. company are you a graduate of stanford for example or harvard and then all these things come into place to give you a good indication and then not to say those are bad indicators, they're actually good because it's easy to understand who is who because their background actually done the selective process. But in my case, I don't have any background like a Stanford or Harvard graduate. I don't have a stamp of being the first 10 people at Facebook or something like that. <laughs> 
And I think, and then most, the, the the oldest part, I'm like a Kazakh guy who is no one really knows where that Kazakhstan is, and then living in the UK and then raising in the US, all things are again and and not in favor of someone like me. So I think the biggest equalizer in life is execution. And that's the only way you can speak to anyone in the world is just show your numbers. And then no one cares your background. They'll look at your numbers and then the rest just falls into it. So I think that's a piece of advice to anyone who feels that they didn't have the right background, they didn't have the right connections. It's all about the execution. So we were just five people. We're fully profitable and we were more than seven figures in revenue. And then that essentially, it's hard to go against that. And then I think that obviously helped us in fundraising a lot. You got the product, you had customers, you had revenue before you went fundraising. In some ways, was that difficult for the customers to sign on to you? Because you're like an unknown startup that might not exist tomorrow. And one of the ways you could show credibility is to say, look, X, Y, and Z has invested in us, or these are investors. You didn't have that. Did you have a problem convincing companies or were you going for the type of companies that were not enterprise? So maybe that wasn't an issue. Could you talk about that? No, absolutely. And you're right to mention that because that was a problem at the beginning when we had no logos, no VC funding announcement, and everyone was like, who are you? And then I think there is a little bit of an element of luck that some of the customers still agreed element of a value proposition they're like okay i know you but you offer a decent service why not let's give it a try and then element of you executing well providing good service and making sure that everything is fine and then they'll probably trust and then you can put their logo as long as you have someone's logo then they have more logos and so on and that's a that's the only way to build it up yeah okay that was really helpful Nurasol. thank you I want to move on for the last part of the podcast to remote working specifically. Like you said, this is something that you have done multiple times. You have personal experience, you understand the pain, and now you're building software in the space. Do you have a point of view on how to build a remote team and how to keep them engaged? Yeah, and then that's a good question because we've done it. We've learned a lot of mistakes and then lots of things. So I think the key here is in a few points. Number one is asynchronous work to make sure that you have less meetings, more asynchronous. So whatever can be done asynchronous needs to be done asynchronous. But that does not remove some of the factors if you need to Sometimes what I realized with asynchronous, not every single person is a good writer. So if you write a message, for you, it sounds what you think, but maybe the way you wrote it is a bit different. And then when I read it, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And then that's when maybe it's easier to do some audio. So you, you can record the audio and explain what you meant in, in an easier way. And then you can take an action. Then there is a nice feature that I am advocating for Slack called Huddle. So I go Huddle with people. So it's basically a room where you go in and then 
someone jumps in, you jump in that room and then you just basically hardwind speak things out. And then that takes you a minute or two instead of having a 30 minute call or a meeting. So that I think works good for any remote startup. Second thing would be maybe you need to think about time zones. Mm-hmm. So if your if your product team is in Asia, then most of your product team members should be in similar time zone because otherwise it will be tough. So maybe you can think about department time zone where you want to concentrate your tech team, where you want to concentrate your sales team, where you want to concentrate your customer success team. And then that could be like time zones. The last thing I would say, even though remote is something that is tough to create culture, it is possible to create culture. I think what I realized the best thing you can do is if you have a kind of a time zone hub, you can fly people in into a one single city or country and then create an offsite. So that is very important because we have people in eight countries, we create two, three different hub spots. And then that's where we move people in and then try to create a some kind of activity or gathering together. And then that helps a lot to build the culture. And then the final thing to add to that, there are a lot of people who say that there there needs to be either office work or remote work. But I believe in hybrid work. Mm -hmm. And for me, hybrid work is not what everyone says is hybrid. It doesn't mean you need to, you have to go to the office. For me, hybrid work is if I want, I work from home. If I want, I work from co-working or the office, whatever is closer to me. Because I do realize there are different types of personalities. People who can work at home and totally fine with that. And people who cannot work from home and then need an office or a co-working space and that's totally fine it does it's not a black and white you yeah. you need to have that flexibility and that's where hybrid works for me but again just to emphasize it doesn't mean that you have to force your people to come to your office they need to go to an office that is either co-working or if they want to come to your office, they can come to your office and it's up to them. Basically, you need to give the flexibility to people to choose and see. But maybe do some people want to come to office one or two times a week and feel a bit of mm-hmm. connection with the other teammates. And then that's totally fine as well. Your seed round funding, $14 million. Mm-hmm. You said you were only planning to get $7 million, and now you've raised $14 million. How are you making sure that you're not going to burn through the money because you have it? How has the motion in terms of operating your company changed? That's a good question. And then one of the advices that I got from some of the advisors was that the trick is not to think that you have to burn through all the money. (laughs) So you don't have to spend all the money. I think I am, before Rima first, I never raised. This was my first proper institutional fundraising and I was a bootstrap founder. So I am already a little bit in the mindset of a bootstrap founder where we spend money cautiously, but at the same time, more money, more responsibility. So meaning you got more money, you have to grow faster and all these things. So the balance there is to make sure that you budget things out and then you know in advance how much money you can spend that year and then regardless of whatever you do you just cannot spend more 
if you want to spend more, then earn more. <laughs> that essentially kind of a philosophy that we take. We have the budget for this year and that's it. There's nothing more, nothing less. Obviously, if you less spend, that's even better. And then hopefully this year we will actually spend less than budgeted. So I have a few last questions. I call it the rapid round. And I usually start with your favorite book. What's a book that you've read that's made an impact on you? Oh, that's a good question. So it's hard to pick the one that made the biggest impact. It doesn't have to be the biggest. Whichever one is memorable for you that you would recommend for others, other entrepreneurs or just other people. Well, I think what we recommend to our team is Delivering Happiness by Tony, I think I'm going to butcher his surname, Sheikh or Shai. So he is a founder of Zappos oh, and then Zappos yep, yep. was bought up by Amazon. Yeah. So the book called Delivering Happiness is yeah. something that actually changed my mindset about customer happiness, customer centricity. And that's a Bible for me when it comes to taking care of the customers. And then that's why, as I said, when I focus on customers and put customers in front of everything, that's where delivering happiness made a lot of impact to me. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that book being mentioned on this podcast. So yeah, thank you for that. What about a productivity tool or productivity tip? Like how do you keep yourself productive? That's a tough one. I'm not sure I'm always fully productive, <laughs> but I try to, when it comes to meetings, I try to have as less meetings as possible. And then when I have weeks when I'm just fully meetings, I just try to have a, basically some block time to concentrate. So I always have some time to fully concentrate rather than having an empty calendar where yeah. you can book anytime. Okay. Your favorite European city? Favorite European city. I haven't traveled much, but for me, Venice is one of my favorite cities. Yeah, beautiful place. And my last question is a favorite quote. It doesn't have to be your quote, or it could be just that a quote that means a lot to you or that you live by. So actually, when I say, and that's a funny one that you asked, when I say just keep swimming, it actually comes from a cartoon. I think it's a Nemo, what? Finding Nemo. Yeah. So there's a Finding Nemo too. And then there's a character um, that's called Dory, if I remember correctly. And then she goes through adverse, a lot of adversities in her life. And then basically she, her saying was like, just keep swimming. And then that essentially stuck with me as well. And then that kind of tells me as well you just have to keep swimming i love that yeah i think it was dory that says that okay great we've come to the end of the podcast thank you so much norsel for being on this podcast show with me today i really enjoyed our conversation and i wish remo first and you all the best of luck thank you so much anita have a great day if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and the ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.